Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, welcome back. And let me just say to you that I often say I have a guest of high stature or high merit or someone I really admire. And sometimes that could be someone who's simply in recovery, who's done a great job getting well. At other times, it can be an international expert in the field of human intimacy. And guess what? This time, guys, we we won. We got an international expert in human intimacy and relationships, and that man is no other than Dr. Harville Hendricks. And let me just tell you a little bit about him before we bring him on. Dr. Harville Hendricks and his wife, Helen LaKelly Hunt, are internationally respected couples therapists, educators, speakers, and New York Times best-selling authors. Together, they have written over 10 books with over 4 million copies sold, including the timeless classic, Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples. And let me just say something about it, Getting the Love You Want. Two things. It's how almost every therapist in my generation learned how to do couples therapy because it is the best way to do couples therapy in the majority of the cases we treat. And second of all, I believe that there is a new edition coming out, maybe a 30th anniversary soon, uh, anniversary edition of Getting the Love You Want, fully updated and fully referenced for today and the digital world. So I'm excited that Dr. Hendricks, Doctors Hendricks and Hunt are keeping up with the times. I can say more. I want to talk about Imago Therapy, but first I just want to say welcome. Welcome, Dr. Hendricks. Thank you. And I appreciate your kind and warm welcome. You're so gracious. Well, you've done a lot of good things for a lot of good people, and that makes me want to celebrate you because what I know about the work we do is it really does live beyond us. And you in particular and your wife have developed with Imago Therapy, with the work that you've done, you've really developed ways for people to open up their hearts and understand what love really is more than a feeling, but also an action. And that's one of the things that I really love about your work. And maybe we could just say in a general way, like, what do you think that couples misperceive when it comes to how they can best love each other? I think you're going to say something like they do what they think is best, not necessarily what their partner might want. Um, In other words, they're not talking, but I'm just wondering. Well, yes, I would start with that is that the, the, the problematic in the intimate love relationship is that people come to their partner to love them in the way that they, A, conceive that the partner might want to be loved or that men would like to be loved Mm -hmm. or that I would like to be loved. And that obviously doesn't work because the partner is not the person who's wanting to love the partner. And that the the piece that uh, has to happen before actually love can happen 
uh, is the what we call the differentiation process, namely that each partner has to become aware that the person they live with is not a figment, is, does not match the figment of their imagination. And this is this is the big challenge. And, and in fact, the um, the thing Helen and I say, and I'm sorry, Helen can't be here today because she's as articulate about all this as I, and and she and and I co-created this starting about 30 years ago. So mm-hmm. it's it's a missing piece, but she just couldn't be here today. Uh, so I think the the first piece about love is differentiation, because otherwise, all love is loving what you have constructed in your mind to be the person that you're with, mm-hmm. rather than the person that you're actually with, who does not. Uh, resemble in many cases anything in your imagination about them. And that's the huge problem in uh, couples' uh, relationships and in couples' therapy is this differentiation piece. And until that process occurs, love actually can't be born because love has to be love of the real rather than the love of the fantasy. Okay, so I have a question for you then, Dr. Hendricks, because it seems to me that love is born out of, uh, I was going to say idiocy, that's not the right word. (laughs) Love is born out of ignorance. I mean, I don't know you, but I feel like I know you. And everything you say is so special and wonderful. And by the time we've spent six months together and I think, oh, this is the best best thing since sliced bread, I feel I do know you. And I know you well enough to be the right person for you and meet all your needs during that early period of romance. And I think what you're saying is three years in, you may discover you really don't know that person at all. How, how, is that, how does that happen? Well, well and, and that is really the case. You know, the highest divorce rate now is uh, year seven, and, and on the way up to that year is the highest divorce rate. Other than uh, couples who are retiring, the highest divorce rate now is also, they're about the same. Uh, and, and it's for the same reason, that the retirees finally face each other face-to-face and realize they've been living with a stranger just as couples discover two or three years in that they've been living with a stranger. And the way I, the, the way Helen and I understand this, that is, it's, it's an interpretive mechanism about what is going on. And so after 40 years of working with couples, we have the courage to say, we, this is what we think is going on, is that that feeling that you're the right person for me has to do with the fact that during courtship and early stages of marriage, Partners have a tendency to unconsciously to conform to what they and they experience what the partner needs uh, to see. In other words, there's a collusion to not deal with reality. I'm going to make myself into the perfect person for you, or at least who I think that is. And it'll be close enough that, that you think I really know you. If you like chocolate ice cream, I'll eat chocolate ice cream. If you like to take walks, I'll take walks with you, although I really prefer I'm a couch potato, that there is this collusion to become symbiotic with each other. Mm -hmm. And what we've been wondering, why in the world would nature set uh, a relationship up like that? And what we understand it to be is that uh, nature is very smart, and it knows that the right people won't bond and connect and marry uh, without the illusion of sameness. Mm-hmm. And that that illusion that we are the same, that we like the same things, that we're compatible. Dating services sell; they sell compatibility, not right, knowing they sure that do. compatibility. No marriage that's of any worth and any value and full of any energy is between compatible people. Uh, it's between incompatible people, and because we need the incompatibility, i.e., the polarity, the tension of the opposites, in order to grow. 
in order to stay interested and invested, if there's no oscillating energy, no, no, not polarizing, but polar energy uh, uh, difference, uh, then there's no interest. The interest dies. So, but people don't marry compatible people anyway. If they fall in love, they fall in love with an incompatible person. But I didn't mean to, Dr. Hendricks. I said to myself, listen, my last spouse was this horrible alcoholic drug addict, and the last thing I'm going to do in my next relationship is marry anyone like that. And then I end up with someone who just has a bunch of set of problems that look sort of like that one. How, how does that happen? It might not be alcohol. It might be something else. could be their computer, but there, there are patterns. Well, the unconscious mind needs uh, it needs to connect with somebody similar to the keratological traits and behaviors of one's caretakers. And the reason for that, we figured out, is that caretakers, even the best caretakers, leave something out. And one of the things that they leave out is the quality of presence. And if you if the if the caretakers cannot be present in a certain way to the child at the right time and in a certain way, consistently, then the need is not met. A need is not met for presence. And so caretakers are absent in two different ways. One, some are absent because they're simply um, not interested, that we call them the, the neglectful caretaker. And the other one is the intrusive caretaker. And both of those, most of people have had both if they lived in an intact family. In fact, in doing some research, they have both if they live in a single parent family because the parent uh, who's single parent does both of those. Sometimes they're available and intrusive and sometimes they're not available and neglectful. And then sometimes they're available enough that the child grows up and, you know, and succeeds in life, but, but has a wound. And, and the wound is the quality of the, uh, of the availability. So if the needs are not met in infancy and childhood that are essential to the child's survival, th- those needs do not go away as, as people grow up. They, the, the, the past remains in the present and it doesn't go away. And so the psyche needs what it didn't get in childhood from somebody similar to the people from whom it didn't get it in childhood, i.e. it needs it from the caretakers. So the unconscious matches the internal image of the caretakers with the intimate partner you meet in adult life. And when those those two uh, correspond, then you fall in love and and you fall in love. And it is it's so powerful that uh, both go into a symbiotic state. They're not in reality. They're in a symbiotic state. Yes. Uh, and living with a person who is not really the person that they thought they fell in love with. And so this will last for a while and you'll go through this wonderful period. It's either for two, two weeks, two months, two years, and two years is about the average until one day somebody does something. And now we call it difference is the basis of all conflict. One of the partners does something and begins to do it consistently that doesn't match the, the fantasy. And when that happens, that triggers anxiety. Why are you doing that, honey? I don't understand. That isn't like the partner I thought you were. It, right, exactly. And, and in fact, you have to stop doing it and go back to be the partner that I thought you were. Uh, and if you don't, I'm going to do things to you that will make you sorry that you uh, didn't do it. Uh, and that is, I'm going to complain, or I'll criticize, or I'll hurt you, or I'll have a divorce, or I'll, I may go take drugs, I may have an affair, I may do something. But all of those actings out are really an attempt to deal with the fact that the fantasy the symbiotic fantasy is ruptured mm-hmm. and people need it back. And, and if they can't get it back, they need compensatory behaviors and, and, uh, and, and uh, self-nurturing uh, things like 
going to somebody else in order to have what they thought they were going to get from that person. So they look for it in other things like addictions or careers or computers or in other people like in, like in affairs. So let me, let me see if I can get this right, just as a quick summary. What you're saying is we are inevitably going to be attracted to people who have some challenges that mirror some things we grew up with most likely some needs that didn't get met. And we're hoping that a person who reminds us of our past will perhaps lead us to those needs getting met. And maybe they're attractive and they smell good and we get involved with them and we start to have romantic feelings. We get all caught up in the romance. And then we start to look at each other more realistically when that limerence goes away. And all of a sudden we say, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is really the person I want to be with. Let me try to change them into the person I want them to be. And that's when the trouble starts because that's when we should begin to look at each other and say, I think the word that comes to mind is acceptance. Well, yes. And the acceptance is absolutely essential. And the, the thing that um, Helen and I work with is what is the technology by w- which gets you to acceptance? Hmm. And what we have devised and discovered really works effectively is curiosity. And, and we put it this way, your tendency will be when your partner presents you with a difference from the fantasy to be reactive and want the difference to be replaced with the fantasy. Mm-hmm. So instead of that, instead of judgment and criticism and shift to curiosity in which you inquire as to, can you help me understand what is going on with you, what you're doing, how you're doing that, what you want to get done with that? In other words, tell me about you. Mm -hmm. And curiosity is the beginning of what we said earlier, the beginning of the differentiation process. If I become curious rather than reactive, my reactivity wants to sustain the symbiosis. But if I become curious, I'm now moving on a different trajectory entirely called differentiation. And that's the road to discover who my partner really is, what sort of inner world they really have, what drives them, and particularly what what are the pains and sufferings that they went through in childhood. So as I see that this is my partner, and many people say I have to get myself clear, differentiation is me getting clear who I am so I can see you. And we say actually it's the opposite. You have to get clear who your partner is in order to really understand yourself and to get clear who you are, that you are not that. But that is the partner. That's the reality. And now you have a major challenge once you delineate. uh, And and the challenge is, shall I now accept this person? First of all, shall I acknowledge that this is really you? Will I uh, accept that this is you? And will I move from acceptance to, uh, can I appreciate you instead of criticize you? In other words, is the difference that scares me and the difference that delineates who you are something I can add value to by appreciating it? Dr. Hendricks, I have to say, in, in a way, and this is what crosses minds, you're saying this, that, that all deep, enduring, long-term love involves grief. Because I, I'm going to have to look up and say, you're, you're not that magical person who's going to fix every broken part of me. And I don't look up at you and feel birds singing every day. And now you're just a person. Exactly. And there's grief about that. But that's when the opportunity for growth is actually presenting itself. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about grief. I, I hadn't uh, thought about that. That the uh, Oh, Lord, I, her name just went through my mind. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you, you know her. She wrote the Stages of Grief. She introduced us to the Stages of Grief, Dr. Kubler-Ross. And, yes, she did that. But it was about the grief of the dying person. And what, we dis- what we've discovered, that she uh, opened a door to all grief goes through uh, stages. Mm -hmm. And the first stage is shock. And that's what happens when difference shows up. 
in the power struggle. You're in the power struggle, and the power struggle is initiated by the shock of difference. And then you have to go all the way through uh, grief, the shock, anger, sadness, uh, crying, uh, and finally you arrive at a point where you can accept that this fantasy is dead, like you accept a person is dead, and then uh, then you move on. And the the uh, danger is that sometimes people say, "Well, now I will move on because I want a person like the one I thought right. I had." Uh, but that's a but that's a mistake. That's, that's a huge mistake because you want to go back to the illusion. And there's ultimately no satisfaction in an illusion. The only satisfaction you can ever have is in reality and with a real person. Uh, who has a real inner world different from your own. And this is where curiosity comes in as being the constant uh, locus of the conversation. As you stay present to the other person disclosing themselves in response to your interests, you discover you live with a fascinating person. But maybe not the one you thought you were living with. But not the one you thought you were living with. Mm -hmm. But they become fascinating and interested, and you begin then to, you can begin to bond at a different level around reality. But there's a but here, which is, there's a, I have to get over my willingness to accept that I might be able to love this person, even though they are disappointing me, they're not the romantic figure I thought they were. And I think that's when a lot of, I think you would say that's a lot of our couples fall down is they realize the illusion isn't there. And this person's a real person who farts and, you know, does funny, watches sports or whatever they're into that you didn't. And then you just say, well, this isn't for me or I'm, you know, and that's, that's a huge loss because you have the opportunity to grow in that very moment. But if you can't tolerate your feelings about it, you might walk away from an opportunity. Yes. Oh, and many people do. And just to make a comment about our culture, we have no public information about this in our culture. (laughs) Uh, The only way it gets out is like we're having this conversation now Mm -hmm. and you have a, a, you have a confined and limited distribution uh, channel, but this is the most primary information a human beings need in order to become truly human. And our culture doesn't have that. Our culture is a worshiper of the romantic idea and the romantic ideals, not knowing that nature set that up in order as the on-ramp for bonding right. and the on-ramp for growth. But unfortunately, nature didn't build in the program about what do you do when the energy runs out. But somehow, Nature helped us kind of figure this out, and and uh, and you are a distribution channel of this. I'm a distribution channel of it to tr- figure this out to get it into the culture. So I'm so delighted that we're having this conversation because I don't think there's anything more important than what we're talking about, and that is when the energy dies and the love dies, now is the time for growth to begin. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325.
Well, there are actually, it, just to say it, there are three areas uh, that we don't educate folks much about and we don't talk about. And I'll give an, uh, a comparison. We teach people how to drive and they need a lesson, they need a license to drive and it can be taken away from them. But we don't teach people how to parent or what it means to parent. We don't teach people really uh, just, in, I know you know this, Dr. Hendricks, but only 20 out of 50 states have sex education. So, oh, I didn't know that. Here's a fact for you. So 20 out of 50 states have mandatory sexual education in the schools. And of the 20, 12 of them require parental consent because, you know, there are parents who are concerned that if your child's learning about sex, that means they're going to have it. And so we don't teach our, our children or young adults about sexuality. They're learning about that from porn. We don't teach them about the intricacies of love or parenting because we assume that that comes naturally. Yes, right. Or that your parents will teach you. It's not the job of the culture to teach you that. So let me ask you this, Dr. Hendricks, and, and I, you know I work with wounded couples, and I really do want to talk about that in a second. But following up on this, you know, there was a time, I'm pretty sure, not that long ago in human history, where we did not mate with based on love, where romantic love was really uh, an ideal that was sung about, and maybe it happened in early romances, but we settled down almost often with someone that we didn't even know or we were assigned to spend the rest of our life with. So that must have involved, I mean, when you, don't, when you don't know someone and don't love someone and don't have that romantic sexual thing going in the beginning, you must have to learn in a completely different way how to, I mean, very quickly about how to love difference. Yes. I mean, we must have this ability if we haven't always bonded around love. I, yeah, I think so. I remember one time a, an Indian couple who had uh, been uh, matched uh, came to one of our workshops. He, he was actually a professor in the university, and so he came up the front with his wife and was talking to me. And I said, let's see, you're Indian from India. Then your, your marriage was an arranged marriage, uh, right? And he said, yes, my marriage is an arranged marriage. Uh, and I said, well, that's really interesting. What are you doing in this workshop? But this workshop is about people who fell in love. And he said, well, Dr. Hendricks, it just so happens that those of us who were matched uh, activate in each other the same things that those of us who, who fall in love, that those of you who fall in love. Um, that there's something about being together and proximity that be begins to produce those needs that you're talking about that often you find, you know, when, in the search and find process of falling in love. And, and neurochemistry, you know, when, when women in particular start to be sexual, they start to bond. Yes. And, and so, so the way that, but in, in the case that this person was talking about, and he said he thought this was sort of generally true in, in matched uh, couples, is that they do are expected to behave with civility toward each other in an arranged marriage, because what is at stake is economics and social status, and that the uh, personal is to serve those two things. So they have to behave that way, and but that they have terrible um, emotional interaction. Uh, but they're still supposed to have children because they have to, you know, populate the family. So they do have sex and they have the babies, but they still have these terrible emotional interactions that are exactly the power struggle uh, that uh, that uh, romantic couples have. I, so I, as I was talking to him and have done a little bit of work on this, have not found much evidence that people, anybody knows naturally how to love another human being. 
that that is like you said with the driver's license. You have to learn how to drive. You have to learn how to love and, and that it is not natural, just like parenting is not natural. And the other thing, Helen and I are now working on a project called Safe Conversations because we came to the conclusion that talking is not natural. Uh, everybody thinks they know how to talk, but hardly anybody knows how to talk without polarizing and without causing some discontent with another person. And it's for the same reason, is that I live in my world. I think you live in my world. When I discover you don't live in my world, then you should live in my world. And if you don't, then you know what's good for you. Uh, you'd better live in my world and see things my way. Uh, and parents do that to children and partners do that with each other. Employees do that with employers and employers do that with employees. So the, uh, in other words, the idea of differentiation, of relating to a real human being's authentic reality uh, is a, is kind of spoken about, but uh, but is not at the operational level, uh, happening in our culture, hardly anywhere. Well, it does seem, and you touched on this earlier, but we have much more accessible, we have much more free time than ever in our histories. Even the hardest working among us, we have more luxuries than we ever had, even the least successful among us because of the nature of the world we live in. So it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, in these times, these last couple hundred years where human beings have had access to much easier lives over time, uh, healthier, longer lives with less stress, less disease, less child death, etc. You would think that what would come out of that would be the leisure and the ability to learn how to love people better. But instead, it seems to have produced an emphasis on the emotional without really any kind of education about the relational. So we all want to have fun, but we don't want to work. <laughs> we all want to have fun, but we don't want to work at it. Yeah. And the culture created in the 18th, 17th, 18th, maybe earlier, 15th, 16th, the, the, the roots of it, of the individual, the culture created the construct of the individual. And that has been the dominant construct for nearly 300 years, is that it's, it's all about me. And, and that function to create Western civilization, because we needed to move out from under monarchy, because monarchy had been controlling life for 11,000 years, and there were no individuals, there were no there were no people. We were all subjects to the king and the, and the church. So we needed that 200 years in which the there was a differentiation process from monarchy to the individual and through and through the democratic process. But in that in, in that which was necessary, what was missing and is is uh, and and is I think the next step in what we could call a radical democracy is to pick up on uh, on equality and relationship that context is as important as the self. In fact, context is what gives birth to the individual rather than the individual giving birth to context. But the context has been totally ignored, just like the planet. You know, we just live on the planet. We don't have to take care of it. Well, too bad about that. If you don't take care of context, you will not be taken care of. And if you do take care of context, you will be. So when you move this into an intimate relationship, the, you know, the, me the message is your relationship is more important than you are. And if you make your relationship more important than you are, then your relationship will meet all your needs. But it won't work the other way around. If you make yourself important, the relationship atrophies, you will not get your needs met and the relationship will die. And pounding my fist on the table saying, you are not meeting my needs. Don't you understand what they are is probably not how I'm going to get there. <laughs> it's not how you're going to get there. Right. The word narcissism keeps coming up for me because... I mean, we live in times that really are all about feeding the self, pleasuring the self, distracting the self. You keep talking about the self. And relational, true, intimate relational bonding is not about the self in that way. 
It's really about, it, 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 and if it is, it's ultimately about my taking joy in your happiness, not necessarily getting you to help me have my joy. <laughs> and so it seems aren't, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm right. You know, I, I, the work that I do is one step behind you in the sense that I'm working with couples who are more emotionally wounded, emotionally damaged around intimacy and sexuality in ways that, that, that they have to go through a lot of pain to get to the point of being able to see each other if they're willing to stay together. I, I want to know why you think Imago and the work that you're done has become so internationally powerful. Why do you think people are so, I mean, you've trained thousands of therapists, you have a nonprofit organization, which I know you're very committed to. You're working with families. Last time I talked to you, you're working with families in Texas and starting some kind of educational. And why aren't you just happy writing a book and, and making some money and being famous? Like what's going on here? Yeah. Well, you don't get much money writing books, even, even when they're bestsellers. So you have to keep working. Well, I think what, what's, uh, what's going on is, uh, it was probably, um, let's see, Imago has been uh, in the culture now for 30 years. As you mentioned, uh, Getting a Love You Want uh, was the introduction of Imago into the culture. And that led with the Oprah shows and the visibility that came from that to an international training program. And what we learned about what Imago is um, was even instructive to me as I uh, have asked people, how come you're so excited about this system? And why will you fly from California, you know, five times in a year to study with me? And what people say was something that I, in fact, didn't know. And that, that was, well, Imago helps people connect. And, you know, because I was born and bred in the psychodynamic world where therapy helps you understand yourself. Yes. And that's so different that Imago helps people connect. And so, and the mechanism is that we created this uh, three-step process called dialogue, Imago dialogue, where you learn how to talk. Yeah. And listen. And, and f yes, and fundamentally, uh, well, you have to learn how to talk. We call that sender responsibility. And you have to learn how to listen, which we call mirroring, validating, and empathizing. Mm -hmm. And that when couples are held in an office um, with a therapist who helps them talk with each other about whatever it is, in fact, it's so useful for highly wounded and hyperactive couples because this structured conversation and you have to hold people in the structure does not allow them to go into their reactivity. It, it, it essentially guides them and holds them as they, you know, painfully say, well, if I've got it, you're saying that, oh, blah, 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 blah. Did I get that? And and it, even mechanically, even when it's done mechanically, before it becomes an art form, just done mechanically regulates affect and moves people into the prefrontal cortex where there are no feelings and where if you're there, you can, in fact, absorb information. Whereas if you're in your feelings, you cannot absorb information. But you need both. But you need both. So when you hold people in this structure, this structured conversation, no matter how wounded they are, whether they've uh, had affairs, whether they're alcoholics or whatever, if you hold them there, they ultimately feel safe with each other. And if you do not feel safe with your partner, you cannot connect with your partner. So safety is the a precondition for for even getting to differentiation you have to you have to be safe then you can begin to listen then you can begin to hear difference without reacting to it so let me ask you based on because i am working with people who are having affairs who are sexually acting out who are struggling with love addiction 
or consistent relationship disorders, they're already so, um, I, I'm thinking of, of something that, of a wound that is, you know, not healed. It's so, uh, they're, they're so um, sensitive, right? Yeah. At the beginning and the emotions are running so high and how could you do this to me? And look what you've done. And I thought you loved me and, you know, and don't you know how troubled I am? I, all of it. It seems to me that when we're working with really troubled, people are very, very troubled in the relationships. It must, it takes a while to get them to the point where they can begin this process because they're in a crisis. Well, that's, uh, to respond to that is, and and we have this conversation with Imago therapists as well who say, well, um, in fact, somebody the other day said an Imago therapist does dialogue about 50% of the time. And my response was, that's not an Imago therapist. Dialogue should be the first transaction in the office. Uh, When somebody comes in to see me, I do not ask them to tell me why they're there. Uh, I have them face each other and tell each other why they're there. And I regulate how they say that to each other. You're saying, and I, if I can be simplistic, yeah. you're the parent in the room. I'm the parent. You're saying you two kids are just so upset that you're throwing things in at each other and tantruming. And, and let me not put you to bed without dinner, but let me sit you here in front of each other and ask you to talk to each other. But I'm only going to let you talk to each other in a way that's respectful. Exactly. And then you were beginning to set the tone for them to begin to understand each other, even in the most painful of circumstances. Even in the most painful. And I'm, I'm setting the tone, but I'm also actually giving them half of each sentence that they can say to each other. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that you have to say when somebody says something, let me see if I got that. If I did, you said, blah, 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 blah. Instead of just reacting or, or just saying, oh, you're saying so-and-so. No, you have to you have to do it. And then the person then has to send in short sentences if they're really upset. And, you, and I regulate that so that they only send a short sentence so they don't flood the partner. Mm-hmm. And they can't send negating and devaluing and critical things. They have to send their pain, their hurt, what they want, how they feel, and, and the other partner gets it. And so what they learn in in fact, I've seen couples who hadn't had touched each other, had sex in three to five years, had touched each other in two years, mm-hmm. walk out at the end of, a, of the first session holding hands mm-hmm. because they uh, experienced that a safety experience for the first time in their relationship and that they can actually exchange some words without both of them blowing up. And they don't, they didn't know that. They didn't know that could happen. And so, uh, you know, sometimes therapists let couples sort of um, exhibit their pathology in front of them so they can then talk about it. And I think that's a terrible mistake because it's the pathology they came to get rid of. So you don't let them practice it in front of you. You only let them practice the health, the connecting process, but they have to do it very instrumentally, very mechanically, very slowly and regulate their anxiety down so that they can actually begin to to feel something other than their own uh, their own inner world. So I want to I want to sum this up for a second, and uh, in two ways. Number one, I'm I'm thinking about your website where you say talking can be the most dangerous thing that people do. Yes, <laughs> and I'm thinking how how clearly you're articulating that you don't want people to say less. You want them to say more, but in ways that they can hear each other. And I'm being simplistic. Exactly. The other piece that really stands out for me, I know we're going to have to go in a second, is simply this: that the more that I do this work as 
as you do, the more I, I understand the basics, which is very simply that when a couple is in a crisis, that they're in a, a completely or fully emotional state, both of them. And then you have to be able to get them back into their brains so they right. can actually communicate without simply, because they won't hear each other when they're emotionally heated. They will mishear things. They will only hear part of things. They'll throw things back at each other that you have to. And if they're unable to, I think you're saying, to calm themselves down, to be able to talk in a truly direct, non-judgmental, non-labeling, non-raging way, then you're going to put a lot of thought-based structure into how they communicate to take the emotional out yep. so they can begin to get closer into their thinking brains is sort of what you're saying. Exactly. I like you more now. <laughs> Let me ask you, how can people reach you? How can they find out? How can they support what you're doing? Because you, you're trying to help couples all over the world. You have nonprofits. How can they, how can they support you? Well, there are two, um, there are two, actually we have three websites. If they want to be a therapist, they go to imagorelationships.org and click under therapist training. Uh, if they want to know about Helen and me and get to our workshops, we do about eight workshops across the country, which is our only sort of uh, interface now with couples at the deep level. Uh, they own our harvelandhelen.com. We'll give them our schedule. If they would like to be a part of the Dallas work, the Dallas work has now become called Relationships First. And Relationships First is a is actually a social movement teaching safe conversations to the general public. Uh, that work is now, I think, spread to about eight or 10 countries. And uh, we have about 400 trainers doing that. And that those people do shorter workshops. They're not therapy. They're educational workshops on core relationship skills. Because what we discovered is that people don't have relationship skills. They don't even have conversation skills. And that a lot of what helps is to learn how to do something, how to do it concretely, like how to say, let me see if I got that. Or to say, when somebody says something, is there more about that? Or to say, well, I can imagine that when that happens, you must feel uh, that these are connecting uh, sentence stems. So in, in Dallas, we're trying to take this particular technology into the general public domain and introduce it into not only couples and families, but uh, schools. Uh, we're going into the education system, into congregations, and into the work life, into the work world, because nobody in any of those places knows how to talk. So if you want to join that, uh, go there and it'll tell you about the training program to become a safe conversation facilitator. I'm going to reinforce this Harville, H-A-R-V-I-L-L-E and H-A-R-V-I-L-L-E and Helen. And Helen, right. Because you can find all of the opportunities to work with Harville and Helen live, which I just think if you ever have that opportunity, what a gift. And they're going to be all over the country this fall and this winter. And I also want to say that this work represents, in, I mean, when I hear Dr. Hendricks say 30 years, for those of you who understand the psychotherapy field, we weren't talking about the level of communication and attachment in couples in this way 30 years ago. It no. really took this this individual, these people, to bring to the forefront the kind of work that I see now routinely going on when we see much more attachment-based work for, rather than trauma-based work. Right. So. Um, to you, my hat's off, sir, and thank you for your time. You are my pro-dependent friend. And uh, <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, please listen to this again because you'll get more out of it every time you listen. And thank you for coming and listening to Sex and Relationship Healing. I appreciate being on and be and uh, having a conversation with you. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank Bye you. Bye for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. 
If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.